Well, good morning, everyone. Man, it is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we have not met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're here for the first time, I met a few people who are here for the first time today. We are so glad that you joined us. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, and at home here at the Vista. Uh, Before we jump into the sermon proper, I had a little bit of exciting housekeeping news to share with you first. As many of you are aware, uh, our longtime and very beloved executive pastor, John Stroker, I love me some John Stroker, he, he left us to take a new job at a wonderful construction company in town, and we're excited for him. But for the past six months, we've been, we've been looking for a new executive pastor. And today, we're really excited to let you know that after sorting through y'all, like hundreds of resumes... After conducting more Zoom interviews than you could possibly imagine, my eyeballs melted in their sockets from all the screen time on these Zoom interviews, we have finally found our new executive pastor. And so, Vista, if you would, please give a a warm welcome to your new executive pastor, Mrs. Lauren Russell. I think we've got a picture of Lauren and her family there. Yeah. Lauren, her husband, Mike, their son, Cole. Now, Lauren, um, we stole her from Scott and White, okay? So if you work at Scott and White, as I know like half of you do, we are sorry, but we, we really needed her. She served as the interim general counsel of their health plan. And if you don't know what that means, let me interpret it for you. It means that like Phoebe, whom we discussed last week in Romans 16, it means that Lauren is a boss, She is brilliant, and she is kind, and in addition to that, and a number of different things I could say, one of the things we really loved about Lauren is she's actually a member here at the Vista. Isn't that cool? Her and her family became members almost seven years ago to the day in October, which means that she is uniquely suited because she she understands Vista. She understands what Vista is, what it means to belong here, because she has belonged here, and she's also uniquely situated to help us navigate our very exciting future together. And so you're going to get to know her more in the weeks and months ahead, but we wanted to go ahead and share that news with you so you could celebrate with us, because once again, God has provided and brought us the right person at the right time. Amen? Amen. It's exciting times here at Vista. So uh, today we're in the second week of our series, our series called Reading Romans Backwards, series where we are walking our way through one of the most interesting, important, complicated, and yet surprisingly simple books in the entire Bible, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, and we are reading it backwards. We're starting at the end of the letter, then we're working our way back toward the beginning because reading Romans in this way helps us understand that all the seemingly complicated theological stuff in the front half of the book, chapters 1 through 11, it is all in service to a very simple goal that gets revealed in the last half of the book. Okay, Long story short, Paul wrote this letter to five small house churches located at the heart of of the Roman Empire around 55 CE because these churches were filled with very different kinds of people who were struggling to get along. And Paul believed that their getting along was essential to the success of the gospel because if Jesus Christ is incapable of overcoming the things that divide us, then how in the world is the world supposed to believe that Jesus is capable of conquering sin, suffering, and death? Does that make sense to you? How in the world is the world supposed to believe that Jesus Christ conquered the grave if he cannot conquer the hostilities that divide us in the room this morning? Now, here's how Gerhard Lofink puts it. I, I really like this quote. He says, look, nobody's ever seen God. 
What can be seen is only the church. And so if it's no longer one but divided, then the world can only faintly behold the mystery of Christ. The mirror is shattered. Listen to this last line. The division of the people of God makes it almost impossible for the world to believe. That's what Jesus said in John 17. So last week we discussed Romans 16. We saw how Paul ends his letter to these churches by greeting lots of different kinds of people, telling them to embrace one another in Christ and give each other, you remember this, the old holy kiss, and then get rid of people who delight in causing division. And so this week we will move on to chapters 14 and 15 where we will gain a deeper understanding of just what exactly is it that is causing so much conflict in these five small Roman churches located at the heart of the Roman Empire. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Romans 14 and 15. Incidentally, whenever we read through a long book of the Bible together, we invite our whole church to read it with us. We make it available to you on the Vista app, our Romans reading plan. So throughout the week, you're reading Romans with us in preparation for what we talk about on Sunday. We'd really encourage you to try that out. It's really helpful for Bible reading. So Romans 14, be 1 through 19, and then we'll jump into a few verses in chapter 15. Okay, be up here on the screen for you. Paul says, now welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Now some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. Does anybody think that should like go on a Miller shirt? Wouldn't that be a great idea if Miller's... I expect a cut of that idea if, if Dusty's listening. The weak eat only vegetables. This is Paul talking, not me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. And who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they're going to stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now, some judge one day to be better than another. He's talking about the Sabbath. While others judge all days to be alike. Let everybody be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also, those who eat, eat it in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God. While those who abstain from eating, they abstain in honor of the Lord, and they give thanks to God too. Now, we don't live to ourselves, and we don't die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living." And so why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead, it's the same word there, judge instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. Now I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but you know, it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So if your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Don't let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Jump ahead now to chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Now we who are strong, we ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not just please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up 
our neighbor, for Christ didn't even please himself. But as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So may the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last verse. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Romans 14 and 15. So here's the deal. We've got these five house churches. And these house churches are filled with two different groups of people that Paul mentions. And these two groups are in very deep conflict with one another. These two groups are called the weak and the strong. You heard Paul mention them in Romans 14 and 15. And so who are the weak and who are the strong, and why are they in conflict with each other? Well, about 15 years before Romans was written, most Jews and Jewish Christians were kicked out of the Roman Empire, out of Rome, by the Emperor Claudius. There were a lot of riots going on among the Jews. He got sick of it, just kicked all of them out. But eventually Claudius died, and all the Jews and Jewish Christians were allowed to return to Rome. And this return of many Jews and Jewish Christians to Rome happened just before Paul wrote Romans. And here's why that is very, very, very important. In the 15 years since these Jewish Christians were kicked out of Rome, a lot of things have changed. You think of some things that have changed for you in 15 years? I had less kids, less gray hair, cowboys were good. There are all sorts of things 15 years ago. A lot, a lot has changed in 15 years. And so these churches they come back to are very different than the churches that they left 15 years ago. All right, just think about this. For most all of early Christian history, churches were mostly filled with and led by Jewish Christians. Most all the early Christians were Jews. They came from Jews. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And so Gentiles were welcomed, you know, in these churches, but they were also expected to kind of get with the program. And you know what it means for a Gentile to get with the program, right? Right? The old snip, snip. Yep, you had to get circumcised. You couldn't eat pork. You had to observe the Sabbath. And you just, had to, you just had to be pretty Jewish. Okay, that was the way it was. Because Gentiles were welcome, but Jews were running the show. And so Gentiles were expected to fit in or get out. That's just how it was. But, as, uh, as Michael Scott would say, my how the turntables have turned. Because in these 15 years of mostly Jewish Christian absence, the Gentile Christians, y'all, they have mostly taken over things now. And in the immortal words of the Somali pirate hijacker and Captain Phillips, um, these, these Gentile Christians, right, they look at these returning Jewish Christians, they're like, look at me. I'm the captain of this ship now. We eat what we want now, baby. We eat bacon, wrapped in bacon, seasoned with bacon, cooked in bacon grease. You know what? We're not all hung up on this Sabbath stuff anymore. Man, if, if your brother needs to send an email on the Sabbath, it is fine. No lightning's going to come down from the heavens. You know, it kicked out of the community. Send an email on the Sabbath. Man, live a little bit. And as you can imagine, this Gentileification of the Roman house churches, it does not sit very well with these returning Jewish Christians. Which brings us back to our questions. Who are the weak? Who are the strong and why are they in conflict with each other? So as best as we can tell, the weak are primarily Jewish Christians who practice strict Torah, especially as it pertains to food and Sabbath, and are judgmental, that's the key word, judgmental of these morally libertarian, loose Gentiles. 
The strong then are primarily Gentile Christians who don't believe in strict Torah observance and are contemptuous of these prudish Jewish Christians. All of which makes our third question, why are they in conflict, pretty self-explanatory, right? The weak Jewish Christians and the strong Gentile Christians are in conflict because while they agree that we should follow Jesus, they disagree on how we're supposed to follow Jesus. For very understandable reasons, these Jewish Christians, y'all, they tend to be much more cautious and conservative in the way they practice their faith. Right? They believe that we are saved by grace, through faith, and not through works of the law. But they also believe that the law is mostly a really good thing that helps us stay holy and set apart for God's purposes in the world. Right? They quote the man himself, Jesus, Matthew 5, 17 through 18. You remember this verse? Jesus says, hey, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. Nope, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. All that to say, they believe that we should practice, that Christians should practice a very cautious, conservative morality where we are very careful about what we eat, what we drink, and how we spend our time. And then on the flip side, and for very understandable reasons. The Gentile Christians, they, they tend to be drawn to the much more lenient, laissez-faire, loose practice of morality. They believe that if God didn't want us to eat pigs, he wouldn't have made them a bacon, right? Makes sense. How much sense does that make? God wouldn't have made them a bacon. They believe that Jesus Christ himself was no stuffy, starched, prohibitionist Southern Baptist, but a man with a rather notoriously bad reputation for partying with sinners too much and breaking the Sabbath laws with great gusto. Y'all, this is the man whom for his first public miracle turned water into 150 gallons of wine. Have you ever seen 150 gallons of anything? I've never seen 150 gallons of anything except in the ocean or a lake. Jesus turned water into 150 gallons of wine. All that to say, they believe that we should practice, you know, just a more lenient, laid-back morality where we are serious about loving God and loving people absolutely, but we don't get all hung up on, like, prudishly policing everybody's behavior, on on stopping and frisking everybody's morality all the time, okay? And so 2,000 years later, we see that we are no longer arguing about whether or not Christians can eat pork. I think we're all very glad the Gentiles won that argument. But we are still having the same general argument about what proper Christian morality looks like, right? Like on the scale of practicing a more conservative or more lenient morality, where are Christians supposed to fall? If you're a visual person, I have this graphic made up for you. Like, should we be more Amish or should we be more Lebowski, you know? Like, what does it look like? And at our church, like just about every church in the history of the world, we have very different kinds of people who naturally fall at very different places on the continuum. Some of you, you would, you would snuggle up very closely to old man Ezekiel over there on the, on the Amish side, and some of you are more Lebowski in the way you practice your morality. For example, I'll give you an example. You, you may have noticed that I, I sometimes mention things like margaritas in sermons. Okay. I don't mean to do it. There's no agenda. I'm not sponsored. Open to it, but I'm not sponsored. It just happens, okay? And the very theological reason as to why things like Margarita mentions happen from time to time 
in my sermons is that I like them a lot. They are delicious and refreshing. Some would say the official summertime drink of Texas. And look, I know, I know that some of you wish that I wouldn't mention things like margaritas in sermons. I know, because you feel like it's, you know, it's kind of inappropriate. And obviously alcohol can be so incredibly destructive. All of us have seen that in our lives. And so we should do everything that we can to encourage a more cautious, careful morality. Right? And I get that. I completely understand that. I, and I am not saying that I'm right and you're wrong. I've been wrong before. It happened once. It was terrible. No, I'm wrong all the time. I'm not saying that I'm right and you're wrong. All I'm saying is it sounds like you could use a margarita because I think it would help you <laughs> loosen up just a little bit. No, and, and you get, we could have multiply examples all day here because the simple fact is that Christians have always do always, and until Jesus himself comes back, we will always disagree as to what constitutes proper Christian morality. There will always be people who, for good biblical reasons, believe that we should practice more cautious, conservative morality. And there will always be people who, for good biblical reasons, believe that we should practice more lenient, laid-back morality. And so here's the challenge, okay? Here's the challenge for everybody. If you tend to find yourself on the more conservative side of the moral continuum, then your challenge is not to correct those who you think are too loose, but to correct yourself for being judgmental. The primary moral problem for which you should concern yourself is not their being morally lax, but your being a judgmental prude. Now, on the flip side, if you tend to find yourself on the more lenient, libertarian side of the moral continuum, then your challenge is not to enlighten those who you think are too cautious, but to check yourself for being arrogant and condescending. The primary moral problem for which you should concern yourself is not their being morally lax, but your being a condescending jerk. And Paul more or less says this exact thing two different times in Romans 14. Let's read them again. This is 14 verse 3. Paul says, look, the one who eats the food is not to regard with contempt the one who doesn't eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats for God has accepted him. Right? Verse 10, same deal. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, other person, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we can multiply examples indefinitely here, but we need to move on. So I'm just going to leave it at this. Instead of imagining yourself on a moral crusade to fix others, imagine yourself on a crusade to humble yourself and accept others. I spent a lot of my life thinking God had put me on here, you know, I'm on a crusade to fix others. No, no, no. I am here to humble myself and accept others, and you are too. And that brings us to one final question. Okay, so we've got the weak, morally cautious Christians. We've got the strong, more morally lenient Christians. They agree that we should follow Jesus, but they disagree on how we should follow Jesus. And so who's right and who's wrong? Well, if you were listening closely, then you might have noticed that while Paul does, he kind of brings the hammer down on everybody, right? Everybody gets some in Romans 14 through 15. He does, though, generally side with the strong Romans 15, verse 1, here's what Paul says. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Now we who are strong, meaning what? Paul himself identifies with the strong. Even as a Jewish Christian, Paul identifies 
with the strong, which in context means that Paul believes that Christians do not have to strictly practice Torah when it comes to things like food and Sabbath. In fact, in 14.14, Paul goes so far as to say, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Right? Paul doubles down here. He uses the double emphatic. This is rhetorical flex. Paul says, look, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. This is like when you're arguing with somebody and they tell you that, that God told them they're right. Isn't that just the worst? So Paul does. He says, look, y'all, I know in the Lord Jesus that these Jewish Christians, bless their hearts, they're just wrong about this food stuff. They need to eat a BLT, sip on a margarita, send an email on the Sabbath, and just chill out a little bit. That's what they need to do, all right? But then here comes the part of Paul that is very, very easy to miss, right? Because you know Paul has a reputation, right? You all know Paul's reputation from being this very, this very hard, uncompromising zealot, you know, who, who demanded that everybody agree with him about everything. You know that, Paul, real mean, angry, ornery Paul. But I'm telling you, if you pay close attention to Paul and what he's actually saying and dealing with, you will realize that he was actually an incredibly laid-back and open-minded dude. In fact, dare I say that allegedly, you know, zealot, hard, uncompromising Paul, he was actually much more laid-back than most of us are. Just listen to what he says here again, Romans 14, 5 through 6. He says, look... One person regards one day above another, the Sabbath. Then another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So look, he who observes the Sabbath, he observes it for the Lord. And he who eats the food does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. But he who doesn't eat, for the Lord he doesn't eat, and he gives thanks to God too. Okay, so translation here. So Paul's saying, eat the bacon or don't eat the bacon. Because I'm convinced in the Lord that I can't eat the bacon. But I acknowledge that you might be convinced in the Lord that I can't eat the bacon. So if eating the bacon bothers you that much, then I won't eat it around you because the only thing that I love more than eating bacon, and there's not much, the only thing that I love more than eating bacon is eating with you. All right, so eat the bacon or don't eat the bacon. Eat or don't eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Eat or what eat, don't eat whatever you want. Just make sure that you eat together. you got to learn to eat together. You make whatever sacrifices you have to in order to eat together. All this to say, y'all, Paul, he was a man of deep profound conviction, a man who was shipwrecked, beaten, and murdered for his convictions. Any of you ever been murdered for your convictions? I didn't think so. And so Paul is not telling us that we can't have deep, profound convictions. He's not saying that. But rather, he is saying two things. He's saying, first off, we should not mistake our convictions for God's convictions. Now, you may have some strong convictions, and they may not be God's, all right? Second, we must, our deepest conviction must be embracing those of different convictions in Christ. Okay, you can have all the, you know, very firm, stern opinions you want, man, all the convictions you want, but if your deepest conviction is not embracing those in Christ who have different convictions, then you have missed it. Why? Why do we have to do that? Because that's what God in Christ did with you. That's why you're here today. Paul puts it like this in Romans 15, 17, wrapping up his whole argument. He says, therefore, welcome one another in Christ just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Because welcoming and embracing one another does not mean abandoning our convictions. But it does mean submitting all of our convictions to the supreme conviction that God in Christ has welcomed everybody. Even you. Even me. Amen. Now, I just really wish that I had been able to think of an example of an issue in which people passionately held different convictions on it. I racked my brain all week, but I just couldn't, 
Nothing came to me. Can you think of any? Oh, oh, yes, the mask and the vaccinations. That'll do. So I want you to raise your hand if you think that mask and vaccinations should... I'm just kidding. I don't feel like splitting our church today. You're like, oh, my God. It's happening. It's happening. We're not going to do that. But I do want to say this because I'm pretty sure Paul would say it. I have observed very closely as the, the masking, the vaccine have, have snowballed into these radioactively divisive issues here lately. And I've noticed that people on, on both sides of, of these issues, they think that we're being tested. Right? I hear that a lot. We're being tested. So, you know, the more anti-mask and vax crowd, they think that our, our faith is being tested. Right? That God is testing our faith to see if we trust in Him or modern medicine to protect us. And then on the other side, you know, the more pro-masking and vaccine crowd, they think that our intelligence is being tested, right? That God is testing our intelligence to see if we're so blinded by political and ideological allegiances that we refuse to accept the plainly good gifts that modern science wants to give us, right? And I'm not claiming to speak for the big guy here. I, I do not make a habit of that. But when I look at the past 18 months, what's happened? I agree that we're being tested. That's very obvious. I agree that we're being tested. But I'm not so convinced that it is our faith or our intelligence that's being tested. I don't think so. Now, when I, when I look around, I think that's what's being tested is not our faith or our intelligence, but our humility, our selflessness our devotion to one another, our willingness to welcome one another in Christ just as God in Christ has welcomed us. That's what I see being tested. And so how do you think we have fared in this testing of our humility? Are you hoping to be graded on a curve too? I'm hoping for a very severe, severe curve. But I do want to say this, and I think I speak for all of our leadership when I say it. I am mostly really, really, really proud of the way we have handled the last 18 months, of the way we've stuck together. Y'all, I've seen churches blow up, never to be put back together over the last 18 months. And I am very, very proud of the way we have stuck together, even though I know there are some deep disagreements on it all. And so I want to leave the last word to Paul, because after laying the hammer down on everybody, everybody gets some. Paul then actually circles back to a very encouraging word that I want to leave you with today. This is Romans 15, verse 14. Paul says, I am convinced that you yourselves, you know what you are? You are full of goodness. You are filled with all knowledge, and you are able to instruct one another. And I agree with Paul. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. We are not entitled to be here. And so we receive today as the gracious gift from our good Father that it is. God, we come before you today and we are different people who have different convictions because our our brains work different and we have experienced different things. Different things make sense to us. And yet we're here today because you have called us together in Christ. You have demanded our allegiance in a way that transcends even our deepest disagreements. And so, God, you know, first off, we just want to pause and say thank you for the way you have held us together. Because honestly, more than anything else, that is what the world 
needs to see. The world cannot take the gospel seriously if Jesus can't bring together people who disagree about things. And so we're just grateful you've been faithful to us, that you have brought us here. And then we pray that you would continue to be with us as the world, as culture, as the sin in our own hearts seeks to pull us apart, always for allegedly good reasons. You would hold us together in Christ so that the world could believe that God sent Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.